Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The Jazz Loft Radio Series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. In the Jazz Loft, sometimes they'd be sitting around talking. And then someone would just start. And then everybody else just joined in. That same spirit is pretty much what started the whole thing. People found the spot in New York's Flower District, one told another, and people showed up. Once life in the loft got going, much of it captured by W. Eugene Smith's cameras and tape recorders, the visitors and regulars and hangers-on there became part of the landscape of the place. The jazz loft became an essential insider's New York spot. But the cast of characters who inhabited that post-war urban oasis had come from every place but New York. It was a time of change for the city and for jazz. This jam session at the loft from the early 60s features Hall Overton on piano, Jim Ryder on trumpet, Bill Crow on bass. Bassist Bill Crow was from a little town called Kirkland, near Seattle. But in 1950, after I'd been out of the Army for about a year and back in college, a drummer out there talked me into coming to New York. He said, if you want to be a musician, you've got to go where the music is, and that seemed reasonable to me. And uh, we got on the Greyhound bus and came out. I think I had $50 in my pocket and high hopes. I came to New York in '46, just out of the Navy. The late pianist Dick Katz was born in Baltimore in 1924. This is Katz playing in the loft with Bob Brookmeyer and Zoot Sims. Bob was only 22 and lived in little two rooms, $50 a month. And while waiting for my union card, I worked in those joints along West 3rd Street. My first really important job was at a legendary place called Minton's Playhouse in Harlem, where Bebop was one of the places it was, they say, born. But it was one of the places where all, all these guys went after work to play, and it was, you know, like Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. And Thelonious Monk was the house pianist, and Kenny Clark was the drummer. I came to New York in 1949. The late alto sax player Phil Woods, who eventually played in the loft with the Thelonious Monk Big Band, had come from Springfield, Mass., to take lessons with the jazz pianist Lenny Tristano. Taking a bus to Manhattan, and then a subway to Long Island, and then another bus to Lenny's house. I think I was 15, maybe 16. And then back to Manhattan for a bowl of spaghetti at Romeo's where you knew it was fresh because they had the big vat sitting in the window all day, you know. I went to Main Stem Records to buy the latest bird, bud, and dis 78, you know, get 20 pounds of wax. And then if we still had a dollar left, go to 52nd Street and get a Coca-Cola for a dollar. And me and my friend, we would sit in the back near the drums, and then that closed at 4 a.m., and our bus left at 5 a.m. back to Springfield. In the 40s, during and just after the war, 52nd Street was the street of jazz. 
A musician or jazz fan could nurse that Coca-Cola for hours and get the thrill of a lifetime. Pianist Paul Blay was in New York, fresh from Montreal. The very first night I went to 52nd Street and heard two bands at the Downbeat Club in New York. The first band was Lenny Tristano, Lee Conner, Warren Marsh, Al Levitt, and Peter M. The second band was Charlie Parker, Miles Davis. That's, I mean, unbelievable. That was for openers. Hello, New York. And what took you so long to get here? Every brownstone on that street had its own club. I saw uh, Milt Jackson's band. I saw Art Tatum uh, when he was at Birdland opposite Bud Powell, and they both introduced each other as the world's greatest pianist. That was a thrill. Tatum uh, was such a knockout, you know, to hear that all of a sudden, wow, that was just mind-blowing. The late Teddy Charles, vibraphonist, had made his way to New York from Chicopee Falls, Massachusetts. Errol Garner was there, Coleman Hawkins. Going from one club to another is like going to school, you know. I got a big break when uh, with Coleman Hawkins' band. Uh, I think Hank Jones was playing with, with the opposite band, and Monk would always show up late for the first set. So Hank said, man, why don't you get up there and play? He gave me a tremendous boost, you know. So at that point in time... Musicians were very helpful to one another. A little-known fact of that period, there was no barrier between tyros and professionals. I mean, we were all involved in jazz, and everybody shared. There was a camaraderie that was absolutely splendid because there was no jazz schools, per se. There was a jazz school. It was Charlie's Tavern, you know. No jazz schools, but after all, there was a new musical vocabulary to learn. Right then, bebop was shaking up the old order, which was swing. In the swing era, the song and the melody was the thing, and improvising was a matter of uh, eight bars at a time or 16 bars at a time. Pianist and songwriter Dave Frischberg, who came to New York from St. Paul, Minnesota, noticed the music loosened up a few years later. The musicians would stretch out and felt free to improvise maybe a chorus or maybe two choruses or three choruses or, or Lester Young would play 10 or 12 choruses. It began to be a more soloist's music. The defining moment came in the mid-40s with Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and a whole new wave of jazz musicians. Author and critic Gerald Early points to one element that distinguished the music. Bebop music is a very difficult music to play. I mean, it's played usually at very high speeds. It requires enormous facility on your instrument to be able to play it. Jazz musicians had gotten to the point where they felt that their music was a music that required as much from you as a musician as playing classical music. This was a serious endeavor. B 
Bebop was a shock. Bill Crow. Some of the musicians resisted it because they just didn't want to learn a different thing. But Bebop didn't just drop off a cliff. There were guys around like Nat Cole and, and Art Tatum who were already doing harmonic things that were wonderful. In fact, that was where Charlie Parker got a lot of his ideas. He said he wanted to be able to play the alto like Art Tatum played the piano. And uh, he did in, in spades. <laughs> he really figured it out. And so it was a it was kind of a natural growth, you know, that musical revolution may have been profound, but its life on 52nd Street only lasted so long. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. I thought I had missed it when I got here in 1950 and saw that 52nd Street was closed practically. There was only one club left there. Everything else was strip joints and Chinese restaurants. But a club called Birdland, named for Charlie Parker, nicknamed Bird, had just opened, as had Bop City. There was still some music, but the jazz players who'd been drawn to 52nd Street were looking for new hangouts and places to play. And there was another place at 136th Street and Broadway that was in the basement of a, an apartment building, but this room was out under the street. You'd go down into the boiler room and then through a door that took you out under the street. And nobody could hear a thing you did, so we'd play all night up there. That was great. Right up the street on Broadway or 7th Avenue was the Nola Studios. Yeah, Nola's had cheap studios, uh, the smaller studios you could get for in the 50s, I don't know, like 25 cents an hour or something like that, uh, for a little room with a piano in it. And we'd have great jam sessions there. Jerry Mulligan and Stan Getz, all the good tenor players would come in there and play. It was going to be one of the bigger studios, you'd get everybody to chip in and you could you'd say, well, we can afford two hours, let's go in. And when the clubs shut down, and the recording studios got too expensive. There were the lofts. It's funny, the jobs ran from 9 till 3.30, I think, and then you'd go looking for some place to play. One of the places was Lenny Tristano's loft. It was like a studio down near the Midtown Tunnel. And another place was Dave Young's discovery of this building that he could get real cheap in the Flower District, and uh, nobody was there after 6 o'clock, so we could make all the noise we wanted. It was great. That was the space we now know as the Jazz Loft. The painter David Young had moved in, and he began to go to clubs and hear jazz players and befriend them. And, of course, he had a lot of art around, his own and others. I probably went to the loft to see it and talk to Dave. And then he got a piano, and then so we started to play. Trombonist Bob Brookmeyer came to New York from Kansas City. At David's, it was such a nice combination of uh, people, and uh, you were invited as long as you could play, and you were disinvited if you couldn't play. But uh, the atmosphere was really loose, and a lot of drinking and smoking going on. It was just a lively, artistic environment. The painters would hang out. The Kooning and that bunch would be there a lot. And it was a, a wonderful atmosphere because there were people that I admired greatly listening to uh, stuff that they admired greatly. Soon, the Juilliard instructor and jazz guru Hall Overton moved in. He'd come to New York from Bangor, Michigan. Trumpet player Dick Carey took some space there, having recently arrived on the scene from Hartford, Connecticut. And later, Master Life magazine photographer W. Eugene Smith, who'd come to New York from Wichita, Kansas, moved in to share the space with David Young, who, by the way, came to New York from Boston. And the reputation of 821 Sixth Avenue as a central New York place for jazz activity was cemented. 
Gene Smith's tape recorder started rolling in 1957. This particular tape, number 257, featuring Bob Brookmeyer, among others, was made, unbeknownst to most of the players, in February of 1959. This is the Jazz Loft Radio Series. In the next episode, Ron Free in which a prodigious young drummer finds his footing in the New York jazz world and loses it. I lived in several different lofts, and I think at the time that I was hanging out at Smith's, I might have been homeless <laughs> during that particular period because I had sunk to some pretty low levels economically and emotionally and mentally and so forth. That's coming up in Episode 6. Thanks to Sam Stevenson and to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishkin. This series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.